No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, longtime baseball writer Tom Boswell explains why Bryce Harper's departure helped pave the way for a Nationals World Series victory. You can have a team with good chemistry with Bryce, but I do not think that you can probably have a team with this fabulous team chemistry with Bryce because he really is a self-branding guy. And ESPN's Jeff Passan says that despite the historic offensive numbers in baseball this season, pitching ultimately won out. In the end, as great as Anthony Rendon was, as great as Juan Soto was, it was their pitching that buoyed them with Steven Strasburg and in Game 7, Max Scherzer. Plus, Utah Senator Mitt Romney discusses potential issues with the NCAA allowing its players to profit from their name and likeness. What you can't have is a couple athletes on campus driving around in Ferraris while everybody else is you know, basically having a hard time making ends meet. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be talking about the NCAA and whether athletes should be compensated. We'll be speaking with Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. But first, an historic week in the nation's capital. A Washington baseball team winning the World Series for the first time in 95 years. It's also the first victory in the World Series for a franchise that started life as the Montreal Expos half a century ago. And frankly, there's no one I would rather discuss this victory with, the developments in this World Series with, than the legendary baseball writer from the Washington Post, the author of such classics as How Life Imitates the World Series, Why Time Begins on Opening Day, favorite books from my uh, misspent youth. It's a pleasure to welcome (laughs) to the show the great Washington Post columnist, Thomas Boswell. No one is more closely associated with the national pastime in the national in our nation's capital than you. You've been covering baseball and sports for the Post for 50 years, um, as long as this franchise has existed, going back to its previous incarnation. Well, you know, the way they did it, I mean, how do you even wrap your head around and try to, as you did in your column in the aftermath of the Game 7 victory, make sense of it all? Uh, I'm beginning to understand that this may be the biggest upset in worlds in baseball history particularly if you isolate that to postseason. People are figuring out now that there were only two uh, bigger favorites that were ever upset in 1946 and 1990, you know, when the Reds won. Uh, So uh, Houston was the third biggest favorite ever to get upset. And apparently they have gambling odds back even as far as the 1919 Chicago Black Sox, who were not as big a favorite why. as Houston. Now, now where this is all from ESPN, see, so it must be right. <laughs> of course, Tom. <laughs> also, I would I would note that in the last three years, the Astros have won more regular season games in three years than any team in Major League history. Hmm. And uh, the team they edged out was the Orioles from 69 to 71. But the Nats didn't just beat the Orioles. I mean, the Astros, 107 wins. They also beat the Dodgers, 106 wins. And they didn't come into it as a normal division winner. They came in as a wild card winner. So they had to win a wild card game against a good team and Josh Hader to get in. But the most amazing thing, and the thing we really probably – 
odds are we won't see it in the next 95 years, is a team that wins five elimination games Amazing. and trails in all five of them. Amazing. I mean, time. You know, there were so many things that were remarkable about uh, the way the Nationals not only won the World Series, but as you said, got to the World Series to begin with. And it starts long before the season itself starts when the guy who has been the face of the franchise for seven years decamps for Philadelphia. And then at the beginning of the season, the struggles this team had. How did how did Dave Martinez mold this team into the champion it became? Well, there are two elements there. There are probably at least 10 things that if they didn't happen, uh, the Nationals would not have won the World Series, including Bryce Harper leaving. The reason that, for that is prim- not primarily uh, any personality issues or clubhouse issues. He was just fine in the in the clubhouse. The big thing was if you spend $300 million or more, you don't have the money to get Patrick Corbin, who won the game last night for $140 million, right. and get everybody else they got, two new catchers, both of them really outstanding, and a bunch of other players. You just can't do both. And uh, you can have a team with, with good chemistry with Bryce, but I do not think that you can probably have a team with this fabulous team chemistry with Bryce because he really is a, uh, a brand, you know, a self-branding guy. Uh, but I don't think this is, this is a Harper day. Uh, the, uh, the Dave Martinez question, um, he came into a team that Dusty Baker had taken to more than 95 wins two years in a row, and he was expected to take this team deep last year when it had Harper, and they went 82-80. and 80. That's a lot of built-in disappointment. He is also not a self-serving, glib, joke-making guy who appeals to the uh, public or reporters. He is directly – he only cares about his players. So he starts this year 19-31. and 31. So you can work it out. Now he's almost 200 games into his career as a manager. He's not a flashy guy, and he's 10 games under 500. But the entire town of Washington wanted him fired. I don't think I have ever written a column in my life saying a manager should be fired. I think that's the business of the team. If they hired a guy who's a bum, let them worry about firing him. <laughs> it's not my – but I actually wrote a column saying Dave Martinez is a wonderful guy. He is a wonderful – clubhouse chemistry builder he's this good thing he's that bad good thing on the other hand i think you probably need to fire this guy (laughs) (laughs) proving that sports writers know everything (laughs) yeah sure sure and and people all over the country were not only saying i mean people were saying of course dave martinez should be fired but what the nats are such a hopeless cause and i read this everywhere they should trade anthony rendon they should look because he's in his walk year. They should look into trading Max Scherzer while he still has a couple of years on his contract and has max value. This is the time for the total teardown and rebuild. And, you know, come on, don't you see this, Nationals? And I got to say, uh, when the, uh, the Nats came home from a road trip in which they lost four of the most hideous games to the Mets you'll ever see with the bullpen blowing up every day. I remember. With the bullpen on the way, with the bullpen on the way to finishing the season as one of the five worst bullpens of the last 50 years. The biggest shock was that Mike Rizzo, the general manager, stood with Martinez and just said, this is my guy. This guy isn't just an okay manager. He's a really good manager. He is doing just what we want him to do. And uh, to whatever degree uh, Riz really believed that, well, he certainly really believed it, but 
man, there were doubts throughout the whole organization. And everybody was kind of saying, geez, uh, you know, is this all a, a big mistake? Is this the end of a, a really wonderful period for the Nats starting in 2012? You know, they have the second most wins in baseball in the last seven years. And there were people saying, wow, this is the end of our really good run. And then it turns out, gee, it's injured players that are the reason. They didn't have one. So at the same time, simultaneously, they went to a series in Milwaukee. They didn't have Rendon. They didn't have Soto. They didn't have Trey Turner for 40 games. They didn't have Ryan Zimmerman. They didn't have all of their starting pitching staff intact. And they only had two relief pitchers who still ended up on the team in the World Series because all the others were so awful they got rid of them. So they had to do an amazing – they got healthy, and then they added pieces. Someone who's been around – to see most of the history of baseball in Washington, covering the game for the last 50 years for the Washington Post, Tom Boswell. Tom, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, enjoy the celebration. It's a pleasure, Jeremy, and I'll see you down the line. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. We're joined now by one of ESPN's great baseball writers and reporters, Jeff Passan. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jeremy, and it's always good to uh, pick up Tom Boswell here. Now, you've made it clear, though, that you're very tired. This hasn't been just an exhausting World Series for those covering it. It's been an exhausting World Series watching it. I mean, there's been a lot of tension, despite the fact that there weren't a lot of close games. There were a lot of firsts. There was a lot of history here. What have the last 10 days told us about the Washington Nationals? I think that they've told us that this this promise that was made you know almost 10 years ago now when Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper were drafted in back-to-back years that the Nationals were going to be something that they weren't just going to be this vestige or appendage from from the Montreal Expos days but they were going to be a fully formed and functional franchise that operated like a big market and you know, you'd seen all these disappointments. You'd seen all these unfortunate bow-outs and losses in the division series. And I was at the wild card game this year, Jeremy, and mm. when I saw Juan Soto whack that ball into right field wow. that was supposed to tie the game, and it gets by Trent Grisham, and they end up going ahead and winning that game 4-3. to three. I, You know, I didn't sit there and say to myself, this is a special team or this is a team that's going to be different. But it was definitely an intriguing team. And from the start of the year, they have always been the team that scared the Los Angeles Dodgers because of their pitching. And in the end, as great as Anthony Rendon was, as great as Juan Soto was, it was their pitching that buoyed them with Steven Strasburg and in Game 7, Max Scherzer. We're speaking with Jeff Passan about the World Series. And in some ways, although the Mets couldn't uh, complete uh, the mission in 2015, they lost in the World Series in five games to the Royals. It felt a little bit to me like that Mets team, you know, in the sense that, you know, it started off very slowly and got hotter and hotter, overcame a lot of obstacles along the way, solid starting pitching, some timely hitting. Um, but, but this team, um, and you mentioned Juan Soto. Uh, how's this for a well-formed thought or question? Jeez, Juan Soto. I mean. <laughs> He's so awesome. 
I mean, how's that for a well-formed answer? <laughs> even better. Even better. He's I mean, <laughs> and awesome back to back. Listen, that's that's what he does, though, Jeremy. It's like he makes you mumble words and babble right. on, and he is he is so full of life. Like everything he does is just full of life. Uh, I love watching him at the plate technically because he's got this extraordinarily advanced eye. I mean, you know, he came up at 19 years old last year, and and he's. He's looking at the ball crossing two inches outside, and he knows it's two inches outside. It's like he slows the game down, like like he's playing it almost in slow motion is what it feels like, the way yeah. that he that he approaches each at bat. Yeah, and uh, approaches, I mean, we could break down, we could spend an hour breaking down Juan Soto alone because it's, it's the eye and it's the ability. You talk about slowing things down. He took Garrett Cole's high fastball deep twice. He had a ball almost up against the scoreboard against Justin Verlander. I mean, those are two of the best pitchers in baseball with two of the best high fastballs in baseball. And Juan Soto makes it look like child's play. And and he is just turning 21 years old. And seeing him, seeing him last night uh, celebrating and, and dancing and talking about Zach Granke said when we got daddy out of the game we knew it was over <laughs> and and i you know i went up to him he had he'd been downstairs they had a they had a trophy and they had a confetti gun and he'd just gotten blasted with confetti and he was walking back up the stairs and i said to him hey uh you know not a bad birthday right <laughs> and and he started talking about how much he was enjoying drinking legally and <laughs> he's like, I'm As trying. Does every- when you're I'm 21. trying everything. I love the champagne. <laughs> and I, when he said that, I was like, Wow, you know, this is like this kid is too good to be true. And and I asked him, What's your favorite moment uh, from this whole thing? And he says, When he saw his parents walking on the field, and and went up to him, and they hugged him, and they said, We made it. We made it. Mm. And and for a kid from the Dominican Republic whose mom is an accountant and uh, whose father works a middle class job and who uh, you know didn't have the greatest education and, and didn't grow up with the most money, it was a really special moment. And that's what the World Series is about, man. Literally, that when you say World Series, didn't used to be that way in baseball. It is today. We're speaking with Jeff Passan about the World Series and the first few games, terrible ratings. You know, the fact that it went seven um, uh, obviously was was a boon for baseball and a boon for Fox. You know, th- there were a couple other things going on that some people are going to remember. There there was certainly the Brandon Taubman story, which in some ways I think cast a pall over the first couple of days of the World Series as the Astros struggled to respond appropriately to what had happened in their own clubhouse. Um, and then in Washington, you know, the, the president comes to the game and their chants and their booze chanting, lock him up. People were talking about that. Um, but, but, uh, and the home team not winning a game. I mean, I mean, weird, weird things and different things were happening here. Uh, what, what are the images that are going to remain most vivid in your memory? That is a really good question. And and I think, you know, I, I look back, I'm going to look back at the individual games. That that first game, 
where you had the pitching matchup of, of Garrett Cole versus Max Scherzer and a really close game that the Nationals shockingly end up pulling off. You know, Garrett Cole hadn't lost a game literally in months. It's been like five months mm. since he had lost a game. And, you know, game two, Kurt Suzuki taking Justin Verlander deep and then just pouring it on. And and you go to three and four and five, and the Astros look dead in the water, and they go to Washington where there hasn't been a World Series game in 86 years <laughs> and take all three of them and hold the Nationals to one run in each game. And at that point, you don't know what you're getting from Max Scherzer because his neck is all locked up on him. And Steven Strasburg comes in and puts on an absolutely masterful masterful performance in Game 6 to pave the way for Max Scherzer to start in Game 7. And what does Max Scherzer do but go out and put on the grittiest World Series performance since the bloody sock? I mean, is that is that what we're the talking shilling, about? I mean, yeah, I mean, no, no doubt, right? Eighteen years. I mean, I mean, Jeremy Max, Max Scherzer, like, if you were sitting next to him seventy-two hours ago, and he wanted to talk with you, he couldn't just turn his head; mm. he had to turn his whole body. I mean, his neck is listen. When we all get oh, older, I know. We I'm, understand. I'm fifty, Jeff. I get it. You know, I, 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 I wake say, up. Our, our, we, we all have those days where we get, we wake up. And our necks aren't doing well. Yeah, I still just... go to work. I mean, I don't know. You know I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> to see to see Max Scherzer go out there and throw 103 pitches when he clearly didn't have the normal command that he does, and and grind through it with two runs allowed, it kept the Nationals in the game and allowed that big seventh inning that they had, where over the course of eight pitches, they changed history. An exciting uh, and unexpected outcome in the World Series. The Nationals bringing a championship to D.C. First time since Fred Lindstrom and the Giants and that pebble thing in 1924. Jeff Passon knows what I'm talking about. Jeff, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Jeremy, you are the big train of ESPN. (laughs) Well done. Jeff Bass. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Big news this week in the world of college sports, or not, depending on your perspective. Earlier in the week, the Board of Governors of the NCAA voting unanimously to allow athletes to benefit from the use of their image and likeness and to be paid endorsers. In the wake of the NCAA Board of Governors vote, we spoke on Outside the Lines to our own Jay Billis, a well-known opponent of the NCAA and many of its policies, and we spoke as well to Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, who has been saying the NCAA must change its model when it comes to paying athletes. Jay, there's already a lot of skepticism about this announcement and this unanimous vote by the Board of Governors. Uh, you've been in the middle of this for a long time. What's your takeaway? Well, I I think it's a combination of things. One, all progress is incremental, so you can argue that this is progress. But what I really think is happening here is the NCAA is reacting to the different state legislatures and the federal government in Congress that have been pushing them uh, to do this. 
Uh, but it's also in large measure a delay tactic. Like they're, they're not going to do this and they're not going to do it to the level that it's really going to be meaningful because they say all this has to be done within the quote unquote collegiate model, which means they're and preserve not, competitive they're balance. Not do it. They're basically saying we're, we're going to, we're going to look into this and we're going to try to provide it, but really we can't do it. And what, you know, they also said they're still going to, in my judgment, they're still going to sue the state of California, uh, and try to stop the California law. Uh, as saying it's violative of the Constitution, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. But then Florida is going to come after them too, right? I mean, that actually helps their their cause. So the NCAA actually is helped by all these different states passing this legislation to say, look, one governing body can't have all this stuff. First of all, they can because you've got a bunch of different labor laws and they operate, you know, just fine with their commerce in every state. But what you're really seeing, in my judgment, is is a couple things. It's it's the NCAA trying to stem the tide of legislation that's coming at them so that they can have some time to breathe and try to come up with some solution. They've already called Congress and said, will you will you pull back your legislation? The answer's been no, uh, at least They just for want now. to placate all of these parties. They want to try to stop this tide. And, and But, but the, in my judgment, they're not really going to go toward a, a system where athletes can really monetize their name, image, and likeness. It's going to be so around the margins, it's going to be of very little value to anyone. Let's say that actually does happen. You know, the law goes into effect in a couple of years. In California, some other states, obviously, are taking up the cause as well. What will that look like on a day-to-day basis if you're... If you're Mike Krzyzewski at your alma mater or your Dabo Sweeney down at Clemson, what's that going to look like when you're going um, to put together a team? It'll look the same as the rest of literally the rest of the free market looks. Uh, it really won't be that hard. Uh, your your example of Mike Krzyzewski, Duke has 30,000 employees. They don't sit around going, well, what do we do? Do we pay the head of surgery the same as the landscape professional? I mean, how are we going to run this university because everybody works hard and how are we going to determine who's paid what? They know exactly whom to pay and how much. They know exactly whom to recruit and whom to put in the game when they want to win. They know what everybody's worth. So if a, just as in the NBA or the NFL, we can have group licensing where players make money and the university has greater revenue streams, and you can also have individual deals that even conflict with university deals and the world will remain firmly on its axis. It's amazing that Steph Curry can wear Under Armour shoes and right. wear the NBA apparel that's made, that's contracted with the NBA by Nike and, and the world's on its axis and nobody has any problems. It's not this big of a deal. So a car dealer in Austin or Norman or where, whatever, you know, he's got a relationship with those football teams and those basketball teams in those cities. Will he be telling kids when they're in high school, like, you come here? And I'm going to take care of you? Is that the way it's going to work? That's possible. Uh, you can certainly have reasonable regulation to deal with that on the recruiting side. But you can certainly have players can have jobs now. So, uh, you know, if you're going to Duke, which is where I went to school, you can get a job as a bartender. And that's no problem as long as you're not paid some exorbitant sum. What's to stop a booster from sending in people and giving you a $1,000 tip every night? What's to stop that? It's crazy. We can't let people work. You know, it, it, look, all this doomsday stuff. The model is challenged, Jay. All this doomsday stuff is nonsense. Five years ago, giving a stipend would have been an egregious violation of NCAA rules. The NCAA said at the, at the time we are going to have to cancel women's sports. This is going to, uh, other sports are going to be canceled. Uh, it's going to ruin competitive balance. Now everybody's given the stipend and nobody cares. It's, it's not this hard. But a month ago, the NCAA was saying this is an existential crisis. And then they pass this a month later. So that shows you they're not dealing on principle here, that this is politically politically expedient for them to do this, and they're doing this for a purpose. And the purpose is to, one, to delay, 
and and the other is to get something in place that placates the governments that are involved here and that doesn't move the needle very much. They can say, look what we did, but we really didn't do anything. And for more, we welcome another strong proponent of federal action on this issue, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. Senator Romney, what was your reaction to yesterday's decision by the Board of Governors? Well, I was pleased that the Board of Governors recognizes that we got a lot of athletes that come from very poor backgrounds that need some additional remuneration, in some cases to take care of their families, uh, but to provide for themselves as well. So I'm glad they recognize that. But I hope they also recognize that this whole idea of using name, image, and likeness as a way to compensate athletes could lead to some very unusual circumstances that need to be avoided. So there's some work that needs to be done. Clearly the devil is going to be in the details here, but did you see this decision from the NCAA a, as a delaying action, or is it actually an embrace of a new model? Well, I think given the California legislation and the fact that the Board of Governors is saying, yeah, okay, we're open to this idea, uh, that suggests that there's actually going to be some movement here. And if not, why, well, I think Congress will act to make some movement, because I think we recognize it's just not fair to have these athletes uh, giving the kind of time they give to their sport and not receiving any kind of compensation or remuneration, uh, particularly at a a time when they come from very, very poor families in many cases. But look, what you can't have is a couple of athletes on campus driving around in Ferraris while everybody else is basically uh, having a hard time making ends meet. And you can't have a setting where some schools that are in major markets or or have big sport followings, some schools are like the honeypot, and everybody, all the great athletes, all want to go to those handful of schools. Then Then you kill collegiate sports. So... There needs to be some adjustment to the whole name, image, and likeness approach to make sure that we don't create those problems. Of course, some would say, Senator Romney, that in the interest of equity, if you're a quarterback in Oklahoma or uh, Notre Dame or Florida State, wherever you might be, you deserve to be getting more money than someone who's on a non-revenue generating team. Well, if you're a Division One school, uh, you know, I think it's going to be appropriate for players in those schools to have some remuneration uh, in addition to the scholarship funds that they receive. But I don't think you can have a, 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 an athlete at a school making a million dollars a year at that school uh, and, uh, and and lording it over everybody else on the team and everyone else on the campus. That's, that's what they're going to get when they go pro. Uh, so the, while they're in school, they're still a student athlete. Uh, and there has to be some limit to how much money is coming into an individual. And there has to be a way to get compensation to other members of the team. I mean, that left tackle also needs to have some capacity to have some funds to be able to make ends meet and to be able to help their family, particularly when they come from such an impoverished background, as so many do. Yesterday, as I'm sure you saw, your colleague Richard Byrd, the Republican senator from North Carolina, tweeted, if college athletes are going to make money off their likenesses while in school, their scholarships should be treated Like income, I'll be introducing legislation that subjects scholarships given to athletes who choose to cash in to income taxes. What did you make of that? Well, I think it's a little early for that. I I respect uh, his uh, his perspective and and uh, and honor him as an individual. So, uh, you know, I want to listen to that very carefully. But I think we're we're really early in the process. And I I think if the idea is that there's some people that are going to become millionaires or multimillionaires in college, why? Then you do talk about, uh, you know, wait a second, what's the what's the tax implication of that? But I'm not looking for something of that nature. I think if we go in that direction, we'd be really harming the nature of collegiate sport. You really want colleges and universities across the country to be able to recruit the best talent without just going to a couple of places. And uh, and if that happens, why, I think you're going to see us not 
coming to the kind of problems that Senator Burr is concerned about. We know the California law is supposed to go into effect, assuming other things don't happen in 2023. Uh, Where do your efforts proceed from here? On what timetable? Well, I'm going to be working uh, with uh, Senator Chris Murphy. He and I are working on this same area. And there are other senators and, of course, uh, Congress people doing the same thing, looking at this area. Uh, but my effort is to make sure that we don't create a setting where we've created bigger problems than the problems we solve. The, the real problem we're concerned about is athletes in many sports giving many hours of practice per day, almost 365 days a year, and they're not able to provide for their families uh, that are, have sent them off to, to school. Uh, they're having a hard time making ends meet themselves. And so we want to help those folks out. But we don't want to create a problem where a few people become extraordinarily rich on campus or or some schools end up dominating the entire uh, collegiate activity uh, because of the market they happen to be in. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. When you think about the history of the National Football League, which is now in its 100th season, it's impossible to consider that history and the breakthroughs that have taken place over the last 10 decades in pro football without taking into consideration the role of the Rooney family. The Rooneys have owned the Pittsburgh Steelers, controlled the team for almost 90 years. Dan Rooney, who at one time also, of course, ran the team, died two years ago. And a new book by his son, Jim, tells the story of his life and his legacy. It's titled A Different Way to Win, Dan Rooney's Story from the Super Bowl to the Rooney Rule. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Jeremy, it's great to be on with you. Thank you. Jim, when you think about the scope of your dad's life, all the things he achieved, uh, not only in football, of course, he was also the United States ambassador to Ireland under President Obama. What are the things that first pop into your head? Well, and and that's, you know, we, we began this process actually while he was alive, and we were talking about doing something maybe for the Harvard Business Review around his career, but particularly related to the Rooney Rule and sort of the pathway. You know, there's, there's certainly plenty of experts out there in, in diversity and inclusion, but to talk about how he tried to incorporate these things into his company, um, you know, from from the from the earliest days that he was involved, and and from 1969 to 1976, the Steelers drafted more players from the HBCUs than any other team, and and you know, then you know, we we you you were young, but enjoying those days, you were in Pittsburgh for some of them. Yeah. You know, we went on to win four Super Bowls, so that's sort of the we we try to take. The idea that he, he tried to step into challenging situations and make a difference uh, throughout the book. He didn't just have an outsized role in the world of professional football for such a long time, as, of course, your grandfather did as well. But he was beloved. He was someone who was universally respected. Uh, it, it's hard to be in a business for so long and exercise so much power and so much influence without making enemies along the way. But. Your dad didn't seem to have any. What was the foundation of his approach to dealing with people? You know, he had these qualities that that I think we all would like in a boss. You know, he he was very competent. He 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 was very smart. He he had great vision. Um, you know, he had all the things we want. He had raised very high standards, and the folks who worked with him around him knew that you know he was going to raise the bar on you. 
But then he took that that you know that that idea that we all also want and, and the you know the concept of of humanity and dignity, the dignity of each person, and they were they were very palpable from certainly my experience, but but I think more importantly. You know, I talked in in this book. I talked to you know probably twenty five different players. I talked to you know the, the last the, the current commissioner and the and the previous commissioner, uh, Commissioner Goodell, Commissioner Tagliabue. Talked to you know sports executives and folks outside, and they all sort of described that to me um, that that you know they loved working with him because he was he was good and he challenged you, but there was just this fundamental respect and decency, and he balanced it or, or blended it in a really good way. And of course, and you mentioned this, um, but the Steelers organization and your dad and your granddad are, are associated with a progressive attitude on race. And we all know that the world of professional football um, is often very much resistant to change. And and it took a while after the league um, was segregated in the early 30s to be reintegrated in the 1940s. Um, the Steelers started an African American quarterback before uh, just about anybody else, Joe Gilliam, in the 1970s. Well, where did your father Dan Rooney develop his attitudes about racial inclusion? Well, I, I certainly believe a lot of it came from his father. You know, my my grandfather promoted the first um, heavyweight title fight between two African Americans. Uh, in the in the history of our country, uh, Ezra Charles and Jersey Joe Wolcott uh, here in Pittsburgh. So so there was a history of that. And then my father, as I said, I think my grandfather was a great promoter. My father was a was a better operator, and he really started to think about you know yeah. how do how do we do this in a significant way from a an operation standpoint. So we hired Bill Nunn, who was one of the first African American scouts. Chuck Knoll, as you said, it was the first time in NFL history that uh, prior to the season beginning, a, a an African American was was named the starter, and that really sent. And, and I talked to Donnie Shell, I talked to John mm-hmm. Stallworth, I talked to Mel Blunt, guys that went to the the HBCUs, and they said, you know, uh, Mel never had a black coach or black teammate before he got to this, or a white coach or a white teammate before he got to the Steelers. And he said, you know, I was certainly looking to see how I wasn't going to be treated fairly. And when Chuck made that decision, it really said to me, you know, these people practice what they preach. So so I, I hope, um, you know, it, it, it's somewhat obvious that it's it's the right thing to do, but it's uh, I'm certainly proud, I guess, is the right way to say it, that that he did it. He didn't just speak to it, but he, he really tried to integrate it into the things he was involved with. You know, and over the years since the implementation of the Rooney rule, um, there have been those who say, you know, th- this is something that is helping. It's giving more black coaches an opportunity to get uh, uh, head coaching jobs and coordinator jobs, get their names in the mix. Uh, others think that too many teams approach it merely as a requirement and don't uh, necessarily take it seriously. Your dad died in 2017. And um, how did he feel about the Rooney rule? Right, right. So, uh, look, he was he was certainly, you know, happy with the fact. I don't know if that's the, the best word, but but that there had been improvement, um, you know, and, and you could look at the numbers and, you know, we went from basically you know, seven hires from 1920 to 2003, and and including general managers now, um, 
you know, you're, you're, I, I don't have that number right in front of me. I should, um, I, you know, but I know you're above 20. Uh, Ten of those folks have taken their teams to the Super Bowl. So, so you know, the numbers are, are good. But he also was, was very much a realist, and, and Tony Dungy shared some of these stories with me about how my father – Oftentimes, in the conversations with with you know John Wooten, who ran the Fritz Pollard Alliance, Tony, some of the other folks who were really the leading advocates, my father sometimes would be the loudest voice saying, "You know, we're not we're not doing enough, and and things aren't happening fast enough." So you know, he always had the expectation, and and I think it was it was throughout his business life, but but on on the Rooney Rule and, and this issue in particular. You know, we need to be doing a better job, and and you know he'd be you know he'd be happy that some things have improved, but he would be pushing Roger Goodell, Roger Goodell now to to keep doing it and making sure that it's you know that that we're we're doing a better job. If there's you know better practices out there, we're thinking about how are we going to include those. Um, you know, the the diversity committee last year enhanced the accountability factor, so now all interviews have to be um, you know reported to the league so so you know we're, we're creating some transparency those are good things there's probably some other best practices and my father would have been on top of you know making sure we understood those and 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 you know how do we include those jim rooney's new book is a different way to win dan rooney's story from the super bowl to the rooney rule and it is a terrific testament to his father's legacy jim thanks so much for joining us here in the sporting life Jeremy, it's really a pleasure, and you do great work. I, I really enjoy it, and I appreciate all that you do, so thanks. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.